So I uh, want to start with the question, what is actually so very smart about smart cities? And begin with more broad questions. When do we actually call a city smart? Who determines what is smart? And smart for who? I have colleagues in the criminology department at the law faculty in Brussels who actually give a course, Smart Cities it's called, and they take their criminology city, uh, students into Molenbeek, part of the city that has become world famous because there were attacks in Brussels and uh, the attackers or the suspects uh, seem to be living there, hiding there. So they took already before the attacks their students into that part of Brussels <coughs> with a, a set of assignments to go out, talk to people, figure things out. And they ask the question, what is smart here? So this is totally unrelated to technology. And one of the teachers there is a uh, excellent Brazilian, originally Brazilian researcher, Lucas Meldasso, and he has done his PhD on the work of um, Milton Santos. Uh, and he developed, Santos developed an idea of urbanism and of territory, of place, where he sort of comes out with a different understanding of globalization than the usual stuff about network that we all know from Castells. He uses Peru's term banal space. Um, banal space is really about the place where you are, the people that you are interacting with in a particular physical space. And he talks about happenings, he talks about homolog oh, oh, what word? homologous space, so contiguity, space that is next to each other, similitude, so spaces that are similar to each other, complementary spaces, so the, the differentiation between different functions of spaces in terms of profession, work, home, etc. And then a more hierarchical understanding of space where you understand the space in terms of some sort of rational command model which seems to fit more with, oh sorry, this is still, um, I would say, uh, a nice example, Torontian example, banal space, so the space that you can actually walk through, um, because I'm a visitor here and I want to, to understand where I'm walking, I think walking is a very redemptive practice, <laughs> but it also gives you an idea of where you are. So I found this book, um, called Stroll, Psychogeographic Walks in Toronto. Um, it opens with a little story about um, Le Flaneur, the idea of Walter Benjamin, um, and uh, it, well, it, it describes what happens when you walk through the city of Toronto. It gives you a lot of history uh, and geography in contemporary sense of the word. And you could say that walking through Toronto strolling through Toronto, which is of course different from walking the fastest way from point A to point B, that this is uh, a certain way of life, mobility. And that brings me to a very interesting work by Thomas Nail, The Figure of the Migrant. It's basically political philosophy 
international law uh, it, it thinks about the problems of uh, migrants and the interesting thing here is that it takes the opposite perspective of what we're used to so we think that normally people are in one place and then there are the exceptional people they move between places and we need to solve that problem we often think we think it's a problem or an exception but our basic default understanding is sedentary uh, and basically he says well uh, there there have been centuries when that was indeed the default there were good arguments for that but that is very clearly and very fast uh, changing so maybe we have to rethink also political philosophy concepts like jurisdiction and territory and take sedentary life as what has to be explained what we have to be surprised about so he talks about kino politics kino in Greek for movement um, and I wrote some stuff on that trying to rethink our concept of border of a national state because I believe that borders in many ways protect us like if you think human rights if you do not have a particular national jurisdiction where you can actually claim those human rights then they are somewhere up in the sky and you might not be able to effect them and that means in a world where these borders are becoming totally networked slightly mobile even polymorphous we might have a problem with that sort of stuff but let's and i I want to introduce the idea of smart cities in this way because I think this is what we want. We want smart cities for the people who live in those cities and the word smart should not be hijacked as if a city can only be smart if there is high tech. It may be the case, but we have to, to learn to ask that question. What is this technology going to bring us? So, uh, of course, at this moment, when people talk about smart cities, they mean high-tech, uh, usually they mean data-driven. Um, and one of the things I try to do in uh, a book that I wrote is to say, okay, we are used to thinking in terms of technologies as tools, so we use these technologies. We're slowly becoming aware of the fact that a data-driven environment is basically using us because that's how it becomes smart by uh, gathering our data and analyzing them and then maybe we must begin to learn to interact with these technologies so yes we are using them I think that's uh, clear yes they're also using us and maybe that's what we want the, the question always is who is we in all these sentences but maybe we must also learn to interact with them because they are anticipating us they are preempting our behavior so maybe we should learn to to turn the table on them um, and uh, with, oh, this is a book I, I talked about so I try to to think these environments in terms of agency I think it might be very interesting and important when you talk about a high-tech city also to think in terms of all these agents so um, uh, network software and hardware usually combined um, that takes a series of decisions based on predictions of our behaviors 
many people think that perception and action are two things. So first you perceive something and then you think about it and then maybe you act on it or not. But when, from the perspective of brain science, robotics um, and evolution, actually it is because you want to act, because you have to act to protect yourself, to flourish, that you are perceiving. So perceiving is always in, is, is in that sense uh, purposeful. And especially robotics, where we try to build agents, shows that you have to think about what the robot perceives. And this is of course also related to cybernetics, which is the science, um, let's say similar to what some people like to call artificial intelligence, which is a very confused term, I think, um, where the idea is that you build systems that um, learn from feedback. So they, they gather a lot of data, they analyze the data, and they, that way they check how their own behavior actually affected the environment so that they can improve and make more effective their own environment. That's basically what machine learning is. Um, and if these agents are becoming what some people like to call intelligent, then it means that they are becoming more effective in being adaptive to their environment. So capable of anticipating, predicting, not predicting because of the predicting, but predicting because you have certain purposes, functions, goals. And you can better reach them if you have an idea how your behavior, the system's behavior, is going to affect your environment. And basically that is what um, this is all about, smart cities. So uh, very quickly about uh, the sidewalk and sidewalk labs, um, which is a, a Google, Google sister, both of Alphabet and Waterfront. So uh, I understand that uh, the city of Toronto wrote out a competition to develop the eastern waterfront, the lakeside. Uh, on that territory there's a lot of polluted stuff, so many attempts to find companies that want to develop that park have fallen flat on their face. Because of that it's very expensive. And sidewalk uh, labs have submitted a 200 page proposal in stunning detail for a new type of place, as they say, think in terms of modular dynamic buildings, underground garbage collection, building a city from the internet, or whatever that is. The idea is that it should be both affordable and entrepreneurial, um, and there is going to be experimentation on and with inhabitants. So uh, actually, I think the, the person from Sidewalk said in an interview, look, we're not trying to build Sensorville here. But when you look at uh, what these smart cities need in terms of data, because they are conceived as data-driven, in the end, they will be Sensorville. So the question is, what sort of Sensorville is this going to be? <coughs> and of course, it's crucial that this is about public-private collaboration. It has many implications. So last week I tweeted that I was going to give this talk and uh, it was liked three times. 
And I suddenly saw a flux of people that followed me, a flux, like uh, suddenly 10 or something. I said, hey, this is interesting. Let's look at who's liking me. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> so I said, ah, so <clears throat> maybe there's an algorithm behind it. Maybe there's somebody sitting and looking at what's happening and thinking, oh, well, this is business. Because, of course, the uh, sidewalk project is also about cleaning and about how to do that in a more intelligent way. So this is Sugar Beach that's uh, very close to where uh, this is all going to happen. This was developed in the usual way with uh, a project developer. I walked there this weekend. Uh, I, I, I think it was a very nice, very urban environment. Of course, it's a bit empty it feels also. So here you have several tents next to uh, um, a wonderful uh, beach front uh, condos I think it's called here. So there's a lot of investment being done there and the idea is that Toronto is going to be extremely urban and hip here. And clearly the idea is now to try something else. To, to, to make this work. Um, I think Molly Sauter actually spoke here. I don't know if anybody was there. She spoke here in December. She wrote this article in The Atlantic about um, sidewalk. Um, so these are some uh, pictures uh, from sidewalk labs. Uh, this is where it's all going to be happening. Uh, this is a photograph I took of the, the actual space. As you see, it's not yet as urban and hip as uh, it hopefully is going to be. And on the next slide, you will see Lakeside. Um, anyway, um, the idea is also that this whole project is going to facilitate uh, interactions between the people who are going to live there. So it's going to be a collaboration, private, public, municipality, residents, etc. They're going to be doing pop-up stations, design jam, um, civic labs, workshops to talk about issues like mobility, housing, inclusion, and interested citizens can send their children to a free sidewalk Toronto summer kids camp. And it's a very interesting idea the, on, on the website of Lakeside. You see alphabets, you all actually say um, we have been wanting for a long time somebody to give us a city. Just give it to us and, and we'll run it much better than all this old-fashioned uh, way it has been done. So th there is enormous energy in the idea that um, uh, what's, what's the famous book, the novel written by Dave Eggers, uh, I forget the title, this, this great book. The Circle? The Circle, yes, of course. So there, there, there seems to be something there like, you know, get out of the way, we're going to do this much better in that rhythm. But there's also, I think, a lot here about how to actually do democracy that we might learn from and might, uh, well, let's see. So I thought it may be nice to look at a, uh, an example from the Netherlands, so-called quantified street, uh, 
of my colleagues have written an article about that under that title, Fortified Street. It's a project in Eindhoven. That's the city of Philips. It's a real tech hub. Um, and Stratum's Eind, that's the street, uh, is the longest pub streets of the Netherlands, with 50, 50 pubs, cafes, discotheques, and restaurants, and they have problems with youth, uh, etc. And um, so they started collaborating with Philips and a lot of other startups and other companies to, to really do a smart city, or let's say a smart street here. What do they actually do? They collect a lot of data, think noise, temperature, number of incidents, occupancy, rate of parking places, number of visitors, and the origin of visitors, where did they come from. They have developed a platform for scientific research, for instance, to investigate the influence of light on violence, light Philips, <clears throat> creating an environment that boosts innovation, of course, testing products, concepts, and ideas in real life practices. There is a living labs um, uh, entity involved in all the research. And they use words like base cam and engine blocks, engine block, which is in line with, with the idea that you can engineer a city. You, you define the problems and then you engineer solutions. So um, the idea of the city of Eindhoven is that this is going to be a street that is going to be safer and cleaner. Maybe cleaner is, is very Dutch, I don't know, but that, that's the two goals that come back all the time. The third goal is test ground. <coughs> so we're going to have these people that are going to be there and, and we can take their behavioral data and uh, do all sorts of analytics on that. So the idea is to do noise detection, camera, Twitter analysis, data analysis, cybernetics, crowd management, and surveillance. That's more the, the more theoretical background, as I said, they have a living lab. They're, they're actually framing this as an urban laboratory where you can do experiments. So you use technology with which you suppose that you can measure everything with the aim of intervening more effectively. And this is important. So you're not just watching. This is not just monitoring. This is explicitly to intervene more effectively. That is interesting. Here you see that um, this, this can be very well analyzed with a cybernetic theoretical perspective. Um, so cybernetic thinks in terms of standard setting, monitoring, behavior modification. That is cybernetics in the uh, let's say the reductive understanding of cybernetics and here you see it at the technical level so there are signals that can be anything sound temperature voice uh, uh, images they, these are picked up by sensors who translate it into data and then there is a control unit there that does analysis uh, that makes decisions what to do because of that uh, and then there are effectors which actually affect something in the real world. 
So the sensors are cameras, they put cameras at five entrances. They are at this moment not storing the images, they are just using it to count people. They have wireless noise detectors at the same five positions with 3D images of the noise. Very interesting. They have light sensors planned. They want you there in two, three positions. They have readers for detecting MAC addresses, so from mobile devices, at the same five positions. And that is um, the length of the street is such that it means the whole space is covered. Having MAC addresses means you can also detect where people are actually coming from. Social, social media crawler detects tweets and posts. So if you enter that space, you enter that space, everything you do is going to be identified and, and your uh, mobile phone will be uh, accessed to the crawl. On those tweets and posts, uh, they do a sentiment analysis. That means they have uh, machine learning to, uh, to diagnose whether somebody is happy, bored, frustrated, angry, on the verge of being violent. And of course, they want to correlate that with the light, um, with uh, voice levels. They want to be able to predict more easily and more fast and more speedily who's going to, when a lot of noise is an indication that there's going to be violence, when that is not at all the case, so that they can allocate, for instance, police um, uh, intervention. Next to that, so this is all data, next to that they do a weekly survey to compare. To compare what? Well, to say this is what people are saying, they are feeling and experiencing and thinking, and this is what the data say. And they want to, to match that together, to check whether the data speaks another language than what people are saying about themselves. And maybe they're using it for ground truth, let's not go deep lots of other interesting things today. So they're using uh, location data from the mobile phones. They actually purchased that from Vodafone. And they say that's being done aggregated and anonymous, but from a legal perspective in Europe, uh, I have my doubts whether that's actually not pseudonymous. Um, and then the idea is that there's uh, going to be police incidents reporting on the location of incidents. So again, that you can correlate lighting, noise, garbage. So from the garbage you can check how many beer bottles have been thrown around. Um, they uh, have municipal cleaning department providing data on waste. And I think they have also data from, I don't think that, they have also data from breweries so they can test the beer consumption. And the idea is if you throw all that data together and you ask an algorithm to uh, find patterns, uh, then it's going to be all very interesting. Now the more interesting question maybe is what is being effected here? So they have 28 lamps to influence the behavior of visitors through copper. Okay. They had asked a company, a startup called SmartNose, to develop an application to test the influence of smell. Um, but uh, Living Labs did not want to pay for that. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but they didn't want to pay for it, so SmartNow said, well, uh, we're, we're not going into it. <coughs> uh, 
Another idea that they have is that gaming might be used to distract people. So at the moment when you predict that violence is going to occur, you, you, you try out different ways of uh, offering gaming on the smartphone or whatever. It's not yet developed. And then, of course, the idea is to develop police intervention in response to sensory information that is gathered and has been analyzed so that you have a, a feedback idea of what police intervention will actually do. And they describe, they're a bit surprised that this is not really being done yet. If you look at it, then the main thing is 28 lamps. Try to calculate what this project has already cost. So they have labs. I've not seen that there are any results from the labs. The labs are there because Philips is involved. So we're talking about a lot of investment. Not sure what's actually happening. The controls, so that's that's the analysis right, that, that sort of connects the data with the effectors. There's going to be Eindhoven Technological University, Fontes University Police Academy. They, they are exploring the development of tools for um, data analysis. It's not happening yet. They're exploring that. Yeah, so things are moving slow, as you can see. Open remote developed dashboard to bring all the information together in an accessible format. Uh, I think also for the uh, people that are walking around there, but it would be important and interesting to see how that access is distributed, who gets to access to what data. There's a mobile phone app uh, that presents key information in an accessible way. Um, but it's not clear whether and how the data is actually used. So there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of energy. You can read interviews with uh, the mayor, with other municipal say that uh, people that work in the municipality that are responsible, they're very enthusiastic also about the police, but not much is really happening, probably potentially because it's <coughs> much more uh, complicated than thought. So there is also a Dutch strategy has been developed independent of Stratus Act, so independent from this project, there's a lot of energy and money going in that direction. I think all large municipalities in the Netherlands are developing a policy on that. And I saw that they have cooked up this uh, strategy, so they want to develop safe and standardized digital infrastructure that is interoperable, but also secure, that is privacy-proof, uh, probably. And undoubtedly, they're going to work on it not being biased. Um, if you want to do all that, well, you, you're talking years at least. So the idea is to have this in public-private uh, collaboration with room for experimentation. That, that's, that's key to these sort of projects. You want to experiment, you want to change the lighting, you want to make intervention, you want to include, exclude, and then test. Is this going to reduce violence or not? Is it going to be cleaner or not? So the goals are safety, um, cleanliness and uh, testing but the testing is of course in order to create so in the end the goals are cleaner and safer and one of the crucial questions is going to be all this investment what difference is it going to make because you can already see in the strategies a lot of problems that will come out 
So the idea is to develop new comprehensive models of government together with inhabitants. The idea is to, to turn it into a specific type of democracy uh, and to, to work with different parts of the government so that, uh, and to do it in a way that people do not have to interact separately with different departments of the government. Of course, it's about education and employability. It's about regional collaboration, um, but in a new way. So cities working in a network, exchanging information, learning from each other, uh, visiting each other, best practices. Well, we all know how that works. So this was this was just the introduction <laughs> to give a feel of of plans that are out there here of some experiments that are actually being done and have been studied. Now I want to talk about um, what is this. So I want to talk about this in terms of um, cityscapes. And one of my concerns is over-complete identification. So the, the urge is to, to have data, more data, and even more data. And the assumption is that it is going to contribute to solutions. The problems that have to be solved often still have to be found. There's often this idea like let, let's create all this data and then we'll undoubtedly find some problems that we can then solve. I'm not so sure that's always the right uh, way. So again, a series of very practical <coughs> concrete examples. Think food safety. Imagine checking restaurant reviews for foodborne illnesses. So you open, you, you walk around with your phone, you can immediately see the restaurant that is here. There have been cases of very serious food poisoning reported from people who just had dinner there in the past six weeks. Um, social security, imagine cross-tracking municipal databases for those in need of support. Uh, in, in terms of fraud detection, policing, well, we have crime mapping, which is applied, I think, independent of the smart city idea in many different places, but it's drawn into the smart city idea. Crime mapping based on sensor data prediction, violence, theft, suicide, and child abuse. Um, education, predictive analytics based on iterative testing, plus social media, plus sensing data. That, that is, we're talking about what happens inside educational institutions. Housing, what sort of policy develop on rent, on ownership, on distribution of different types of populations in the neighborhood. If you have all the data and you can follow people, then as you could do a top-down management uh, much more easily, which of course has uh, quite some implications if you really want to do that. Energy usage in public uh, space, use of ambient intelligence to reduce energy usage for lighting. Etc. Then, of course, crowd management in public space, routing in the case of catastrophic public events, how to prevent uh, when something terrible happens, uh, enormous amount of casualties. And you can see that shopping centers are becoming walled gardens uh, with behavioral advertising, um, location targeting. Uh, well, you could say that this. Uh, this connects with the uh, merging, assembling, and interaction between online and offline. Think about airport security, it's the same thing. We think that, uh, that all these shops at the airport, this large area of the shops, 
that that's for economic reasons, but it's also for safety reasons. So the idea is that before you get to the gate, there's a lot of profiling going on, and it can be datafied, but there are a lot of people walking around just watching whether somebody's behaving atypically. So in Berlin, the Brandenburg Airport is still not open. Why? Because they have not taken into account this security thing. The metro entrance entered too close to the gates, and security people said, never. That is so dangerous. We want to have like a certain amount of space with shops where people get distracted, where we can actually see what's uh, CCTV, smart advertising, cars, energy grid, policing. From a different perspective, we're talking about Internet of Things, cyber physical infrastructures, as computer scientists call it, robotics, clouds, public cloud, private cloud. So the distinction between offline and online is becoming artificial. You can make that distinction. Of course, you can make it. But the word make here is very important. So we're moving from landscapes to cityscapes, and uh, some people would say to no escape. There is a persistent buzz of data flows, analytics, and automated decisions. In some spaces, that is already the case, but the idea is that uh, this is increasing, uh, and that when you step outside your house into a public space, which used to be an anonymous space, uh, you're sort of captured in a haze of identification. And I put a question mark there because this is also already in your house. As soon as you have a mobile device with you, actually, it's the case. The promise of all this is hyper-efficiency, instant effectiveness, and self-executing governance. Um, okay, so now I want to I want to share with you a 10 minutes video. It's, uh, 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 let me not, yes, I'm going to introduce it. So this is a video of an artist, Julie Moretti. She was born in Ethiopia, raised in Michigan, United States. She won a MacArthur uh, uh, Foundation Genius Award when she was 34, that's very young. Uh, and in 2009, Goldman Sachs commissioned a mural, a monumental mural, which she worked on with her whole, uh, should I say staff, with her collaborators, and that should be on global trade and communications. And <laughs> when I tried to collect some data on her to introduce her, I saw that, uh, that there was this number, so she has a 4.6 million auction record in the United States, which, which I found in itself a very interesting detail. So we're talking about an artist, but obviously an artist becomes more important if we can say that she has a 4.6 billion auction record. Okay, probably it's gone up by now. Um, I encountered her when I was in Porto in a uh, very interesting uh, exhibition, a wonderful museum. Um, When you look at her paintings, you see, and I'm now quoting the New York Times, hand-wrought depictions of loose data shifting through cyberspace, velocity and fragmentation of contemporary life. So th this is 
This is connected. This is one of her paintings in that museum, another one. Um, but when you look at it like that, it basically doesn't mean very much. Um, so I'm now going to... Uh, I now hope that we're going to have access to if it's too loud, tell me. If it's too soft, also. There is no such thing as just landscape. The actual landscape is politicized through the events that take place on it. And I don't think it's possible for me in general to ever think about the American landscape without thinking about the colonial history and the colonial violence of that narrative. The abolitionist movement, the Civil War, the move towards emancipation, all of these social dynamics that are a part of that narrative, we don't really talk about in regards to American landscape paintings. And so what does it mean to paint a landscape and try and be an artist in this political moment? The color in these paintings really came out of blurred photographs that were embedded inside of the underpaintings the sirens and the flames of race riots was the way to embed the paintings with DNA so that I could respond from a deeper place. I'm gonna go upstairs and take a look. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Mary Goodman contacted me, telling me that SFMO was interested in doing this commission before the new museum opened. I went several times to San Francisco to visit the museum. I was there staring at this very cavernous open space with these two walls, and I started to think about the national parks and the representations of American landscape painting. And specifically, when I came back, I kept thinking about the Hudson River Valley school painters, like Edward Church, Thomas Cole, Bierstadt, because they really encapsulate that idea of going westward. I started to layer the blurred color images into these historic landscape paintings. Just prior to emancipation, Native Americans of the Sierras and the Western Frontiers were completely annihilated by this expansionist project. What was interesting was that aspect of both annihilation and then preservation shortly after can exist on the same geographic landscape. San Francisco then as a site became important because that was this destiny of going out west Jason Moran wrote me after I seen some paintings 
and talked about them as a score. That's, that's, that's Travis Dodd. And I was super interested in that. And so when we started working together here in a very, very loose and open way, it's kind of an amazing thing to paint in the church. Everything kind of reverberates back into here, energy-wise, consciousness-wise, and everything that has taken place this year in my personal life, with my children, with what has happened politically, all of that is immersed in these paintings. All of these brutal killings of black people in this country and black life. The Trump Hillary hanging. It was disgusting to witness. There was something in that language that's visceral. When a person speaks so horrifically towards another being, it's deeply wrenching. The discomfort of being a person living and working in the United States is a place that I think these paintings were being made from. one tone and it's like the room tone, you know. It's the tone that makes it resonate. And I started to find some of that in the note A flat. I started to build around that and then every once in a while I'd look up and see where Julie was in her work. And then slowly like I started to look at my sheet of paper not as a place that had a start and a finish, but that all of it could be composed on different moments. I made a little section where where you can take the stuff away. <laughs> like I made you a little a little <laughs> a little part that's like I'm taking taking this away. <laughs> America is a country still in the adolescent stage. It doesn't know how to deal with its emotions. <laughs> doesn't know how to deal with its history doesn't want to dig in the ground to know what artifacts are under it. And so jazz, I always say, has been that form of music that's been the model of letting people know what's happening. It's always been like that. And so we recorded the music because we should document the moment and also share the moment. I really try to think about painting in terms of the construction or making of an image, dealing with things that we don't have proper language for. I kind of start to think of them as these visual neologisms. The neologism is there to address when language isn't enough. Through repetition of the mark, there's this desire of trying to invent something
at a certain point, I wanted to bring elements of the underpainting to the surface so that it further complicated spatially how you would see these. And this one connects to 45. When you're looking at these paintings, they're not graspable. There are moments where they reference Renaissance ascension painting and then other moments that feel digitized. At least for me, they're not something I feel like I could give any kind of articulation of what's happening fully. So, <clears throat> for me, what this um, what this work, what she's doing, and you're looking at her while she's doing, shows is the physicality, the localness, and at the same time, all sorts of abstraction. So, she works with uh, stretched canvas that is primed, and the first visual layers involve drawing, painted areas, sprayed acrylic. Acrylic that is applied, sanded, reapplied, and then it creates a very tough, nearly plastic layer, very hard. And then she projects images, parts of other images, draw lines and individual marks. So she uses a lot of digital downloading, compositional tools, graphite, sumi ink, acrylic paint, rapidograph, pens, pencils, brushes, and spray paint, all part of the repertoire that she has to make this. The preparation of the surfaces at the first level of visual information involves underpainting. So you, you, you put a painting and then you add to it 
so she has underpainted, masking, tracing from protected, projected images, all that is applied, the actual work, by her studio assistants. The intuitive marking, I don't remember if you saw it, but after it's finished, she goes and does lines, so markings, which she also, she stands back because the, the thing is monumental, so she stands back, looks at it from a distance, erases, does it again. So the composition is defined by her. Um, <clears throat> and all the adjustments that she does and shifts happen through the gradual um, build-up of this work. And the final fields, once again, of these gestural marks, as she calls it, uh, to populate her sedimented field. Sedimented in the sense that they're under that layer are all sorts of other layers. So what happened is she got the assignment for the the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, that was uh, restored recently. And she got the assignment to make two monumental paintings. She lives in New York. And she said, where am I going to find the space to actually work on this? So she found a church, empty church, very close to her, where she actually did the work. So I'm going to see her again. Um, what happens is that many of her paintings are like architectures. There is a lot of maps and charts, not in these, but in some of her other works. There are sort of meteorological perspectives, so that means you're looking from some sort of sky. When I saw her paintings in Porto, I had the feeling I was up in the air. There is a simultaneity of events in time and space, intersecting flows of trade, geopolitics, and people, this gestural abstraction. And that reminded me of Constant, famous uh, one of the Cobra painters, Rob uh, Nienhuis, Dutch painter. He developed New Babylon. And what is the same here is a combination of rationalist construction, intuitive markings, a combination of inscription followed by overwriting. <clears throat> and that means you are sort of erasing history by the overwriting which she then subsequently excavates. I don't know if you remember, but she puts something on top of it, which means that the underpainting comes back again. Now, <clears throat> what has this got to do with smart cities? Well, that's the interesting question that you're all waiting for, maybe you already know. So actually what you see is a new layered city space. What I meant with what we just saw is that all city spaces have always been layered. There's always a lot of underpainting. But now we're getting from geography, history, from the bricks and the bones, the physical space, to, um, sorry, so the physical space and the institutional layers, municipalities, schools, housing, events, uh, policing, we all know that. We're going to new layers, <coughs> and that is all these artificial agents that are going to act, that are actually going to effect things. It's built into the architecture of the smart city. So on the one hand, it's going to be artificial intelligence, 
autonomous systems, data-driven, take a number of decisions. On the other hand, you're going to have code-driven decisions that are, for instance, based on the use of distributed ledger technologies, usually called blockchain. These are two very, very different um, uh, ways of layering the city space, <clears throat> very different because data-driven means unpredictable, means that machine learning system is going to develop solutions that you would have never thought of. That's why you want them. That's why you call them smart. Distributed ledger means you are totally conv convinced that you already know the right solution. You want to make sure that it's going to be self-executed, that nothing comes in between. So it's sort of 180 degrees the opposite. But both are part of the idea of smart cities. So we have big data, predictive analytics. Uh, now, here again, so you have algorithms if this, then that. That's the code driven, that's freezing the future. Because you're totally convinced that you know how you want things to be a year from now. So you think of a will. Think I'm going to die, <coughs> I'm going to make a will, and I'm going to write that will into a distributed ledger. That means that basically nobody can stand between me and the execution of that will, also after I'm dead. Um, machine learning, of course, is a totally different sort of technology um, where a lot of questions are important in relation to smart cities, like which domain experts are training the algorithms? Is that people who are specialized in energy usage, in network load balancing, I'm thinking smart grids? Uh, is it people who are expert in uh, municipal governance, government? Um, people who are experts in garbage and garbage and waste management. Um, to do machine learning, you have to develop a hypothesis space. I, I don't want to go into the techniques of that today, but each decision you take on how to develop that hypothesis space, which is a mathematical space, each decision you take there has an impact. So that's not. It's not something objective or something like that. Each decision has an impact, and some decisions are better than other decisions, but that depends on what your goal is. So, uh, which type of algorithms have been chosen? Have you chosen your algorithms and your data in terms of speed? So, what can be done very fast? In terms of fit or in terms of uh, generalization? That means that you can apply the patterns that you found easily to other problems. Um, all of the design choices that are made when designing machine learning systems, each decision <coughs> has trade-offs. There is no decision that has no trade-offs. And the interesting thing is to get our finger behind that and to so think, do you want speed or accuracy? Because you can't have them both. You want availability of data, so the data that are out there. Or you want utility. You want to have the data that you really need. All these trade-offs. So the bottom line of that is if you are looking for data to solve a certain problem, you should actually first define the problem and then go and look for the data. 
is a computer scientist, Johan van der Leij, is actually into medical informatics, who articulated beginning of the 90s. He had nothing to do with data protection. He, didn't, he was not interested in privacy at all. He was just looking for good computer science. And he said data shall only be used for the purpose for which it was collected, because otherwise you get bad machine learning. You get mistakes, inaccuracy, or you get high accuracy, but it has nothing to do with reality. And if you didn't define a purpose first, you shouldn't use the data. Of course, that's, that's an extreme position in practice, uh, because of all these trade-offs, you will have to uh, creatively deal with it. But these trade-offs and all the assumptions should be on the table. And especially for the people who are going to suffer the consequences of this machine learning. If you put together a lot of data, at some point you get data obesitas. That means you have a lot of data, <coughs> but it's going to cost you an enormous amount of money, energy, and time to curate them because some will be uh, incorrect, some will be irrelevant, uh, some will be simply false. So the more data you have, the more expensive it becomes to select the right data. Data obesitas also leads to uh, pattern obesitas, and that is not some sort of narrative of social theory, blah, blah. That's core to machine learning. If you put a whole lot of data together and you ask the algorithm, go and find patterns, you know what? It's going to find patterns. And those patterns might have nothing to do with reality. And depending on the type of machine learning you're using, you might not be able to check that. So algorithms always detect patterns. The question is, is the data relevant? Does the algorithm do what you think it does? How does the pattern in the data relate to the real world? So if you have patterns in data, uh, we think that that means that the patterns are also outside the data. That's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of uh, research out there which, which shows you that, for instance, high accuracy, which which means that concerning this particular data set, the pattern that is found uh, is very accurate. It accurately describes the data set, but that not, does not necessarily relate at all to the problem you're trying to solve in the real world. Okay, so back to Julie Noretto. So. There are new, you, you could say, scapes, landscapes, cityscapes, uh, what have you, scapes. And uh, what, what I like about her work is that there is this combination of highly rational, totally abstract um, work, the layered stuff, um, the, the intuition that comes in in markings. Um, <coughs> The calibrating between an individual level, so when you have this surface with all the layers, there's this person that goes there and intuitively begins to mark, and he steps back, looks, takes the marks out, does it again until it fits. So this reminds me of uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the, not the internet, but the web, so hyperlinks. Um, it is thanks to him 
that this was not turned into a proprietary thing, which means that we can all use it now. If we had decided to make a lot of money, we would live in a totally different world, which is very interesting. So Tim Berners-Lee also um, started the Web Science Institute, and he articulated, I think, in 2012, two questions for what he calls web science. And he says, questions are when does microscopic interaction between two people on the web scale to produce a new macroscopic phenomenon? Think fake news. Think a lot of other things that are happening on the, on the web. And then he says, what creative magic is required to identify new microscopic designs that could have positive macroscopic effects. So that means you have to do a lot of testing, you have, you have to develop all kinds of techniques to play around with interaction between people at the micro level and test that against how that scales. And the scaling on the web is related to threshold behavior. Um, the search engine Google is based actually on threshold behavior because it's based on page rank, on hyperlinking. So a site to which many other sites hyperlink is going to come up in the listing of your search results. So this is all about threshold behavior, about <coughs> the more people say they like A, the bigger the chances that other people are going to like A. So is actually saying, okay, the, the, what I just said is a very crude explanation of threshold behavior. If you want to do real scientific research on that, you will have to go deep and say when it applies and when it doesn't apply. So um, let's, let's reframe this in terms of smart cities. Because now we have the web and we think it's all on the web. But the smart city basically means that this is going to be in our hardware, in our tables, chairs, roads, houses, walls that are going to be modularized. And the smart city is used to do A-B testing on its inhabitants permanently. Is there anybody who doesn't know what is A-B testing? That's the wrong way to put a question because nobody's going to put up her finger. Is there somebody who knows what is A-B testing? Can you explain it quickly? Sure, so A-B testing is essentially you have uh, a factor that you're trying to test for and you create a condition where there's condition A and there's condition B, which is different from condition A, those are the things that you test. And depending on the outcome of, of how each game work you performed, you opt for the more optimal uh, uh, condition in whatever it is you're so you could say that all the websites that everybody here loves, because they're intuitive, because they're easy, because they're interesting, exciting, are A-B tested. But not once, but continuously, all the time. Because it's like you put a red button on the site, you leave everything the same, you put a red button, then you send half the visitors to the site with a red button and the other half without a red button. You test their behavior and say, okay, I like that behavior, I'm putting the red button. But tomorrow, all your competitors have done the same thing. The red button doesn't work anymore, right? So you're doing this all the time, improving what is so fantastically called the user experience. Smart cities are going to do this 
all the time, everywhere, with all your behavior based on sensor technology. Now, if, if these are the questions that are going to be asked, I think these are excellent questions, but they're very high level. And we want to, um, we want to get the people who are going to suffer and enjoy the consequences of smart cities to get involved in this because it's their city. It's our city. Well, Toronto is not my city, right? So there are a lot of other questions. Using Julie Miruti, I also did because I'm impressed with the way the issue of indigenous people plays out in Canada. And I don't read anything about that in, in the whole smart city. So every terrain, every land here has a very specific history that is layered in many different ways. So how do you involve the citizens, the people? How do you design for individuals or which individuals? Because individuals might not like the same thing. You can't always give everybody a personalized how to pay keen attention to the distribution of positive results. So it's nice to have positive results, but if they are distributed in a way that is new or in the same way that we all agree shouldn't be the case, is this about distribution of risks also? Are risks redistribution here? without actually mentioning it, saying, well, we have some new risks, or well, the risk is basically the same. Yes, maybe the total risk is the same, but maybe the distribution is, has changed. Maybe that's good, maybe it's bad. Who determines here what is good and bad? So, um, what role should and can municipalities and the VNG, I doubt you will be interested in that, because that's the Dutch Association of uh, Municipalities, so it's I should have taken this out. Um, but of course, the same question can be asked for uh, Canada or for Toronto. So how do you get citizens involved? What is the role of public government? What's the role of the private companies? What can we learn from, from the experiments that are going to be taking place? Is, I don't know if you remember all these hip urban words about design jams on one of the former slides, ideas from uh, uh, Lakeside. Um, so maybe our idea of democracy is becoming very problematic because it's based on a type of society that, uh, that we're not living in anymore. So maybe we have to also reinvent democracy. But then the question is, who is we? Who is we under whose supervision? Which incentive structure is here? Who's paying for it? Who's making? Who is framing the issues? To what extent can we and who is we um, work on framing the issues? Um, okay, this raises a whole lot of other questions, which which I assume are not very surprising. Who holds what data? Public, private, which public, which private? For what purpose, on what ground? What transparency should be provided on data and algorithms, the proprietary uh, software, um, uh, trade secrets, access to prior research design, so um, 
in medical science, it's now required if you want to publish something in a reputable medical journal to pre-register your research design. If you don't do that, you're not published. Why? Because you can tweak your design and whatever you don't like, you put in a drawer that you close. So it turned out that this became a real problem. So the big journals will not accept any outcome if you've not pre-registered. That also means that if the outcome of your research is this medication doesn't work, it's going to be available. So we have to learn with machine learning from that um, idea and basically require that stuff that's going to be tested on us has a research design that has been pre-registered. And maybe that's more important than all the, the blah blah about transparency and looking into the algorithms. If you tell me your research design, which data did you use, how did you curate it, what type of algorithms did you use, uh, what sort of hypothesis space did you develop, what was your performance metric? Did you test six, seven, eight performance metrics? Ah, and then you, you're showing me only two, because those two give you high accuracy, while the other six give no accuracy at all, but you're not showing me, so I, I'm not a computer scientist, I don't know. So maybe that little part of the sentence, access to prior research design, is one of the most important things, but it's also difficult to communicate to citizens, right? Um, how are you going to talk about this? Must we develop new ways of talking about code, data sets, evaluation metrics. There are other questions. What contracts have been concluded based on what tenders? Which requirements have been developed concerning privacy, bias, and autonomy? Have there been requirements about this? What non-disclosure agreements are in those contracts? On what grounds? Is it justifiable that a municipality that lives off tax money, makes contracts with private companies with non-disclosure agreements in it, which means that we cannot test where all the money after the project failed, because that happens, went. I'm talking about the Netherlands. So many projects where the idea was for 10 million euros we're going to do this fantastic project, we never heard back from it, and then three years later we hear that it's now cost 200 million, and it's on the verge of being a total failure. Now, I want to see as a citizen, this is about democracy, where does the taxpayer money go? Can I see the contract? And of course, I understand a company wants to protect its trade secret, its intellectual property, granted. But we're talking about public money that's going there. So, um, I'm raising it as a question, and I think this is for smart cities, I would be very interested to know what happens to the data, who, who's holding that actually in uh, the sidewalk project. Well, and then I think it's important to have agonistic debates uh, on decisional powers of the algorithms, not in terms of the mathematics, uh, but about the purpose and the roadmaps, uh, while being aware how the math functions. So. There was a time when there was a small group of people that could read and write. Now we have come to a situation where everybody reads and writes. If you look at the neuroscience of learning to read, there's wonderful literature about that now. 
it takes your brains an enormous amount of effort to be transformed behavior-wise and morphology-wise into a reading brain. So if, if you take a scan of a reading brain and brain of somebody who's not read, it's a different brain. Very different, it's a reorganization of the brain. So anybody who tells me, yeah, but statistics and mathematics, that's, you know, some people understand it and others don't. Bullshit, total bullshit. If we want, anybody can in principle learn to get, let's say, the grammar of that and to understand Bayes' theorem. Yes, of course, this is not something that, that, that we value. Our society is still text-driven. But if we want to have a data-driven society, I'm convinced we have to uh, learn that. And that's one of the things I argue in my work, and you wouldn't believe it, but there is an end to our talk. <laughs> Thank you. And that, this is the end.